When I think about that aspect of being personal, they really listened to what our considerations of our stakeholders were along the way versus just looking at P&L and balance sheet and cash flow. Like those are obviously three important pieces, but they wanted to know what was behind all of it. And they wanted to understand what our plans were and how we were in relationship with our supply network, with our customers and with all of our stakeholders. So it just really felt like they cared. Welcome back to the Patient Capital Podcast Series. This is the last episode in the series with a guest interview. Next week, we are wrapping up the whole series with a solo episode where we share our conclusion of what is patient capital, what is not patient capital, and the right question to ask yourself before you are going out there in search of patient capital. Our conclusion may be different than yours. So let us know what is your conclusion after listening to the full series. Reach out to us on LinkedIn. From episode 151 to 155, our guests have shared the definition of patient capital from the perspective of venture capital funds and the founder who received capital fund from them. In episode 156, we share a lender perspective of patient capital. We spoke with Mindy Christensen, Vice President of Lending at the RSF Social Finance, a lender who supports changemaker who are moving the economy from being extractive to being regenerative. If you haven't listened to episode 156, don't miss it. RSF Social Finance is the pioneer of regenerative finance and the way they operate is unconventional. We are so impressed with how RSF Social Finance operates, how they define patient capital, and how they support both borrowers and investors. For this reason, we invite RSF Social Finance borrowers and investors to certified B Corporation businesses to share their mission and how RSF Social Finance has been supporting their missions for many years especially during the challenging time. Last week in episode 157, you have heard from Carol Levine, co-founder and co-CEO of Lotus Food, a certified B Corporation. Lotus Food's mission is to partner in fair trade with small family farmers around the world who are growing rice more sustainably and preserving rice biodiversity. They have partnered with RSF Social Finance for many years and attributed their success to this right partnership. You're listening to her CEO journey, the business finance podcast for mission-driven women entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Christina Shahli. If you are new here, a big warm welcome. If we are not connected on LinkedIn, please reach out and say hi, because that's where I hang out and share my business finance tips. If you have been listening to this podcast for a while and you are a regular listener, I want you to know I appreciate you. My podcast won't be around without your support. This is a free weekly show where my guests and I want to inspire you to balance between mission and profit, to create an impact in this world, and to achieve financial equality through your business for good. Today's episode is episode 158. 
our guest is Caroline Duell, the founder and CEO of All Good, a certified B Corporation since 2009. RSF Investment has helped All Good continue to grow at a rapid pace, not only financial growth, but All Good was able to become a certified carbon neutral in 2020. 30 years ahead of the Paris Agreement deadline and 10 years ahead of the commitment of fellow B corporations. That's the result of finding a mission-aligned lender who cares above and beyond the financial numbers. As you have followed along with this Patient Capital podcast series, you have heard from investors, lenders, as well as the founders that capital raising is a journey. And getting capital from a venture fund is not the only way, nor it is the right type of capital for every founder. But it doesn't matter what type of capital you are seeking. If there is one thing in common all the guests share, that financial acumen is a must at every point of the journey. And the investor expectation of your financial acumen is different for each stage of your funding journey. At the very least, your incoming investor wants to see well-thought assumption built into the financial model. And we at Profit Reimagine are here to help you in thinking through all the assumption you need for the financial model. We have created a guide for you. This guide shows you how to create an improved forecast for future growth. By thinking through the question we put together in this guide, you can incorporate them into your assumption and build them into the financial model. In addition to using the guide, you have another option. If you don't have time to build a well-thought financial model on your own, our fractional CFO can help you. Connect with us at theprofitreimagine.com forward slash let's chat. Now, let's find out Caroline's CEO journey. Caroline Duell, welcome to her CEO journey. It is a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you, Christina. It's an honor to be here. So before we talk about your experience in receiving patient capital from RSF Social Finance, I would love for you to share your journey since 1998 from selling at the farmer's market to build a multi-million dollars business, all good. Okay, well, from 1998, there was no dream of a business at all. I was living on a farm in Northern California with my boyfriend, now husband. I have a background in plant medicine as well as wilderness education. And the combination of those two brought us to install an herb garden on a farm where we were living. So out of the herb garden that we installed, I planted it by modality. So I had a headache section, a skin section, a stomach section, stress relief section, and the skin section thrived. And I decided to make a salve out of it that worked really well for my other jobs, which were doing massage and and climbing. So I made an amazing salve out of it, immediately called it all good goop. And it was purely a hobby. Fast forward all the way to 2006, it was when our business really started. And after just giving that salve, that one single jar of medicine away and continually making it, I finally realized it was becoming a business when I needed to get some jars to some people who wanted them, but we weren't able to meet in person. So I went to a store where we had been selling our raspberries and garlic and 
tomatoes in Fairfax in Marin County, California. And I said, can I leave these here? And then one of your customers will come pick them up later. And he literally just looked at me, the owner of the store who we were friends with and said, you are hilarious. It's time. You're starting a business. Put a label on these, put a UPC code and I'll sell them because that's what I do. So it took a little coaxing into actually becoming a business. I didn't really ever think that making plant medicine was something that could be commercialized and also kept with integrity. So that took a little coaxing and some research on my end to really believe it could be true. Uh, and then after we, you know, we started selling to that one store, the Good Earth in Fairfax, I realized, well, this could be fun. So I found some stores in different areas. I was able to find the health food store and the sports shop here locally and sold to them. And then whenever I would go on a road trip and either go skiing or go adventuring around the Western US, I would have just a bin of products in the back of my car, a portable printer where I would use to print uh, invoices. And that's how we started really turning it into a company was just literally store by store, door by door, person by person, connecting with people who really enjoyed and wanted to use all good products and then it's really just grown organically from there. What is your main product? So give me a little bit of highlight of that. What is your main product that popular, your best seller? We make a whole line of mineral sunscreens that are the best sellers. We do premium organic botanical body care products and mineral sunscreens. So we have lotions and oils, healing salve, sore muscle spray, lip balms, deodorants, hand sanitizer. And then we also have a whole line of mineral sunscreen. So there's butters and lotions and sprays, sticks as well, that are all kind of, uh, you know, meets the needs of each person, whatever their needs are relative to the sun. And they're all non-nano zinc oxide based with organic botanicals and oils. So they're really safe, good for the body, and they're effective and easy to use as well. What was the turning point when you knew you can have a business without compromising your values. Yeah, I think it was just my uh, internal growth and, and evolution of thinking that transformed from considering opposition, something other than myself and opposition of business uh, as kind of an evil player in the world to really realizing that business is just a form of exchange of energy and money is the vehicle that allows for that exchange. What I have learned in this journey is that businesses are no more than just a really servants to their customers. So as a business person, it gave me the opportunity to sort of turn that around to really listen to our customers and make sure that I stayed on track to always offer them something that for me maintains personal value with social and environmental responsibility as well. So here's the thing. You've been a certified B Corporation since 2009. So counting towards now, you have been through a few rounds of B Corp's recertification. And what I really understand about B Corp businesses, this is really a journey. Every time you recertified under the B Corp certification, it seems like you're, you continue innovating. I am really curious if you can share the changes and the innovation all good did from one recertification to another. What have you done so far? Sure. So I'd say in the beginning, the interesting thing for us was that we were so grounded in really making sure that we measured our impact. And so the certification really served as 
much more of a communication tool to just be able to explain what we were already doing. So from that, it was nice in that way. It was hard for me to articulate some of the efforts that we were making, but then suddenly saying that we were a B Corp kind of just summarized those. And so as B Lab, the certifying entity, the nonprofit has grown and matured. So has their assessment and so has their approach and so much of their research is really driving what questions are being asked. So I think that as organizations, we've really paralleled our growth together. And rather than just being a communication tool for sharing what we're doing, it actually does offer us great benchmarks to look into things that we might not otherwise take action on. And two that I can think of that are good examples. The first is is actually becoming a California benefit corporation which is the legal side of the entity part of it for any corporation that has shareholders. The importance of having that legal aspect of it is that it really can protect a company against its shareholders by making a claim in the bylaws. So it's really folded into the DNA of the company to prioritize the balance of social and environmental responsibility along with profits So that if there were a move that were made by the company saying, we're actually not going to take this step that might drive more profits because it has a negative impact, that legal entity of being a a benefit corporation prevents the shareholders from being able to sue the company for making a quote unquote non-profitable move. So that's a very interesting piece. And being a certified B Corp definitely drove us to benefit status. And then the second, which, you know, I think we kind of would have done, but it was definitely supported by B Corp is becoming carbon neutral and really taking that step to measure scope one, two, and three. And then we've since partnered with climate neutral as an entity to verify our calculations and also help us continually measure, reduce, and then offset our excess carbon we're unable to inset or reduce. Okay, I'm always curious about carbon neutral. What changes do you have to do within your operation to lead you to carbon neutral? The most important thing is to be able to measure. And that's the first step. And most companies, that's a huge hurdle to actually truly understand what what your emissions are. Literally measure what you're doing. And that means measuring the utilities and the waste produced within your facility It means measuring and understanding the specifics of any utilities that are used that come and go from the headquarter facility, if there is a headquarters. And then for a consumer packaged good company, which is what we are, that requires transporting items around the world, scope three relates to all of that. So all the way from the sourcing of the product to the delivery of the product and everything, all the kind of steps along the way that are required to get a product to market is all the scope three. And that's by far the most complex and most challenging to measure. You are basically delivering products all over the world. How do you even minimize it? Yes. I mean, it it goes all the way back to the origin of, of raw materials. So if we're able to source raw materials that are produced in a way that builds topsoil and actually sequesters carbon versus supporting industries that are extractive and destructive and continually uh, releasing carbon, that's that's number one. And then when you get into transportation, that's in- inherently super challenging. But some of the things that we've learned are just being able to bundle products so that you're reducing amount of truckloads per run, packaging them in a way that they fit better, and then reducing 
unnecessary extra steps of travel between locations. So making sure like, you know, you can go directly from a supplier, directly from sourcing to a customer versus having another stop along the way. And then there's a very interesting freight company called Flock Freight, which is doing some really cool bundling where they're making sure that they have full trucks going from point A to point B. One of the biggest learnings for us was that planning and pre-planning has a major impact on emissions because if ever there's a need to rush something, like if we had to air freight something over a long distance, the carbon emissions relative to that are astronomical. So that's definitely a big piece of it for us is just making sure we plan better as well. You know what really refreshing for me listening to you explain about this carbon neutral and in the process that you are doing within your business in comparison to big companies where they basically purchasing carbon as a commodity. Have you heard about this talk <laughs> where they're basically using carbon as a hedging tools and they are purchasing carbon so they create an asset on their balance sheets. You can purchase carbon and then you can do offsetting, right? I get it. And then because you you cannot do it 100% just from your process. But when the focus is really purchasing carbon at a cheaper price versus thinking through and see what can I improve within my business process, that's mind-blowing. I think it's like a, a natural progression of the human spirit to try to find the quickest way to the end. And it certainly doesn't serve us. And it certainly doesn't serve us along the way because in particular, because of all the unintended consequences that come out of that. And that I also think it drives a collective level of misunderstanding that will then take us to a place where we're not going to actually accomplish what we're seeking. Personally, I find the B Corp values has more meaning than the ESG on its own. Because a lot of big corporations out there, they're focusing on the ESG, but it's a lot greenwashing, in my opinion, versus really looking at their process and really think, how can I help the planet? How can I change my process and really make a difference instead of just focusing on, okay, I'm going to find a short-term solutions. I think you're ahead in the race if you think of it that way, because people need to catch up. And a lot of these terms and concepts are really fresh and really new. And even if the actual tangible outcomes of them have not really shown up yet, just the conversation around it is going to keep people curious. And so from that perspective, I think it's almost the first step and we're just stumbling around until, you know, the right things get in the right places. I interview a lot of B Corps uh, businesses. And then one common theme that I have heard, a lot of B Corp businesses really believe this is a journey. Once you get the certification does not mean you stop innovating and improving your ways and finding a better ways to, you know, remove plastic or to become carbon neutral. That's what I have seen with B Corp businesses. And that's what I admire is that we're not going to be perfect ever, right? Like there is always going to be improvement that you can make, but is it your in your mindset and is it within your values that 
you believe you can continue to innovate and improving bit by bit. That's right. And ultimately also driven by what customers are looking for. And I think that's excitingly, that's really showing up as well. So there is one thing though, under the BIA or the B Impact Assessment, and then this is what I noticed, there is really nothing specific in there talking about capital growth financing. The only points within the BIA, it's in regards choosing your banking partner. So I am curious from your perspective, how do you continue to align your value and authenticity with the capital financing side? Well, on our end, it actually does start with our banking partner. So we do our daily deposit relationship with a B Corp bank called Beneficial State Bank. And the way I like to consider understanding our capital partner and the importance of finance as a tool for environmental and social responsibility, as well as growing the business, is to just think about where our money spends the night. Is it out there funding (laughs) oil extraction and sovereign nation invasions or military purchases and whatnot? Or, Or is it funding affordable housing? Is it funding alternative clean tech energy projects? And when you look at Beneficial State Bank, you can actually calculate where your money is spending the night based on your bank balance on their homepage of their website. So it's very transparent and very clear and offers a direct connection to the impact of of cash and finance. From a lending perspective, of course, we partner with RSF Social Finance. You can't get more aligned than that for us, right? It's it's rooted in, in such a deep understanding of the importance of community on so many levels that it that it really feels like an incredibly important pillar of our business to make sure that the finance is aligned as well. Small businesses and small business community, it's incredibly difficult to get funding. So you kind of get it where you can, right? And it's not like there's always an uh, always access to something that's perfectly aligned. And that took us a while as well. So I, you know, I just want to encourage other business owners to be patient on that, but always keep an eye out and keep a door open for someone who feels like you're going to be a really good partner on all levels. So aside from RSF Social Finance, did you use any other capital to grow your business over the last 15 years? The very first financing we had was an SBA loan in 2006. And the coolest thing about it for me was that I had no idea what I was doing and learned about a nonprofit organization in our county called EVC, which is the Economic Vitality Corporation, San Luis Obispo. And their whole drive was to really help small businesses grow. And I met with them and and they guided me to the idea of getting an SBA loan. Part of their support was targeted toward uh, women-owned businesses. And I was literally just starting out, met with this advisor. His name was Dave Muklar. He said, you know what? You're a woman starting in business. You've got a great product. You've got great opportunity. I'm going to send you over to the bank and and you should go talk to this guy and and tell him you need a loan. Like right now, he picked up the phone and said, like, go over there right now and talk to him. So I went over. It was Mission Community, local bank. I went over there. And at the time, I thought that a banker was not somebody who was on my side. I thought I had to have everything completely buttoned up to make sure it was perfect to present to him. And I walked in and I tried to kind of pretend like I had it all together, but it was very clear that I didn't. And he said, just relax. Don't even worry. Sit down. Let's take a look at everything you have here and we'll put together a package that'll work for you. And I was like, well, okay, that's really helpful because I didn't know it would go that way. And then he said, by the way, 
Dave just called me as you're driving over here. And he said, if we give you a loan, they will back your loan. That was the very first opportunity that I had. I think it was that we're a small women-owned business and I was able to get a $125,000 backed loan from a nonprofit locally. That evolved into another SBA loan. So I did two different SBA loans. And then my third round of sort of lending was from a nonprofit called Slow Money. Slow Money is an independent organization made up of a bunch of different people in different areas that are very specific to help grow vitality in certain areas. And one of the main premise that Woody Tash started it in Boulder. And his main premise is for, imagine if investors spent 50% of their money within a local community. Imagine if there's a second one. And then the third one is, imagine if we grew topsoil by 50% every year. So they're literally directly connecting the importance of growing topsoil, carbon sequestration, biodiversity and soil to funding. And I did two different rounds of lending with them. And that allowed us to open a local warehouse. Um, It allowed us to expand our calendula, our medicinal flower farming that is a source of uh, raw material in our products that we grow on our farm. And it also introduced me to many different individuals within that community who could continue to do side funding and, and lending. The next round of lending I did was a convertible note with some of the slow money lenders, as well as other local lenders and local investors. I did a, a convertible note, and then that was it before we approached our RSF. Were you scared when you first approached capital financing through a debt financing? I was always advised by business owners who've been through it to just hold on to your equity as long as you can. And then, you know, when you get to a place that makes sense, I, n- I never really had a business plan. I never had a growth plan. It, it was just growing and I was following the lead of what was happening in my business. And so I think that's the important thing. If somebody does start with equity is that they have a plan out of the gate. They know what they're doing. So it seems like you've been dealing with the right lenders lenders that believe in you. How is RSF different than the other lenders you had dealt with in the past? Well, in general, I feel very, very grateful for our journey on lending. But the shift to RSF was monumental. Our our last loan was with Rabobank before it was with RSF. They grew rather quickly. And I think now they've merged with Mechanics Bank. But toward the end of that relationship, it was a few years long, I started to feel like I didn't really have a place in their ecosystem. Uh, there, I had a couple of contacts that were amazing, but they weren't necessarily the decision makers. And when it came down to it, it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of priority to, to help us support us through specific needs. And so, you know, it kind of just starts to feel a little stale and a little bit like, a tr- like transactional versus having a, a real understanding of who we were as a business and what our needs were. I was pretty excited to, to shift to RSF and, and with RSF right out of the gate. It's, it's a personal relationship. Starting out that way gives a great opportunity to, to grow into um, a beautiful partnership. So how is it a personal relationship? Share with me the process that you went through with RSF that you basically said, this is a personal relationship. They care about our mission. The timing was impeccable. I was in a, uh, a meeting of a um, CEO sustainable network group called uh, One Step Closer, OSC. They're based in the Bay Area, and it's a collection of, of businesses that are really driving innovation and change. They had an opportunity for me to sort of present our current business case at a meeting with all of the, the CEOs there. 
I was a member of the the smaller sort of start the group uh, that's called uh, Rising Stars. So you enter into OSC as a smaller company and get to seek the advice and, and mentorship of the companies that have been there longer. So I was in a room with about 20 CEOs and lo and behold, it was my turn to speak that night. And also Kate Danaher from RSF was also presenting. I was basically saying, I'm ready to bring on equity financing, what are the mistakes I should avoid? And then the way the format goes is they say, if we were in your shoes, we would do this listening to my whole presentation. So at the end of my call for help that I was going to go for equity financing, every single person in that room said, don't do it. And you should go for a lender who understands what you're trying to do. And Kate is here in the room and RSF is a great partner and that's what you should do. So I literally got very, very well escorted into uh, an introduction to RSF. That was really helpful. They definitely put us through the the vetting process. It, it wasn't like, like that was like a soft opening, but then we absolutely had to go through and make sure that we were well fitted for them. And when I think about that aspect of being personal, they really listened to what our considerations of our stakeholders were along the way versus just looking at P&L and balance sheet and cash flow. Like those are obviously three important pieces, but they wanted to know what was behind all of it. And they wanted to understand what our plans were and how we were in relationship with our supply network and with our customers and with all of our stakeholders. So it just really felt like they cared. That's kind of the best way I can describe it. Now, I know that you receive a huge help from RSF Social Finance. At the very beginning, I believe in 2019, you got a 500,000 line of credit. And then during COVID, it jumped into two and a half million line of credit. Even though that they care about your practices, they care about your mission. To give you a big jump, basically five times, there's got to be something aside from your business practices and your mission. What else do you think that they are willing to give you that high jump in terms of line of credit? It was certainly a unique moment in time. We had been producing hand sanitizer for seven years and had a small amount of inventory. But in the onset of COVID, hand sanitizer was probably one of the most coveted items. It exploded, right? Places were out. Some of the larger companies are based in China and were unable to get their supplies out. So we were well positioned to respond to the crisis. I think RSF really recognized that and saw that, that we were using a domestic supply of raw materials, a domestic supply of components. And they also were curious about the relationships of who we're selling to and where we were, you know, our supply network. And so because of our long track record, both with our vendors as well as our customers, we were able to position ourselves somewhat securely in that with our suppliers if they needed more upfront cash, we were able to extend our terms with our customers, but there was still that gap that we needed to be able to fulfill POs and to send product out. So I think that's probably the biggest piece for them. Obviously, if anyone was going to step up and, and respond to the pandemic, they wanted someone on, you know, who's on their side of the table on uh, in the, within their network doing that. And so they were just really able to be there for us and really able to commit to what we needed. Do you think if your finances 
wasn't organized or you were not able to show a financial result from the past, would they feel comfortable in giving you the big uh, line of credit? I don't think so. They have their own fiscal responsibility for their organization and they have covenants that they have to follow as well. In addition to borrowing money from RSF Social Finance, you are also an investor for RSF. So how did you end up becoming an investor? So when we switched our term loan from Rabobank Mechanics Bank over to RSF, that's when we opened our line of credit as well. That was kind of part of that transition was being able to have a line of credit as well as a term loan. And so our loan transferred over and what we needed was to find a balance of collateral all the way through for both of those. I had also been doing the convertible note raise and was able to collateralize that term loan with some money from one of the convertible note lenders. So she was able to provide the capital. We started the SIF fund, and then that fund actually collateralizes the term loan. That's how it happened. I also know there is a gathering that RSF does like every quarter, I believe, called Community Pricing Gathering. Can you elaborate a little bit your experience from the borrower also as an investor in this community pricing gathering? What is the benefit like for the borrowers to meet with the investors? Yeah, I think it's really one of the things that sets RSF completely above the rest, in particular, this practice. Um, It's a tangible example of how they differ from other lending institutions. And it's remarkable. So it's, um, I think it's once a quarter And it's basically an opportunity, like you said, for the lenders and the borrowers to come together and talk about interest rates and what should be done with the interest rates. And so uh, lenders can share their experience of what their needs are, what their investment needs are. And then the borrowers do the same and they're able to give a summary of their businesses and what's going on and if they have any recommendations. And I tell you, our CFO attends those meetings and the first, after the first one, she called me and said, I've never even been a part of anything like that in all my years of being in finance. It's for, it's just incredible because you really, it disarms everybody. It's not like I'm going in to get the most. It's like, let's get to know each other, understand what the needs are and proceed accordingly. It's crazy. It's crazy in the sense that it's just not normal financial practice, right? To put people uh, on opposite opposite ends of uh, of the network right in straight conversation with each other. And it's it's really, truly incredible. People, you know, they, they hash it out and, and work it out. And in the end, it comes out and everybody agrees that it's the way it needs to be. And then you have an opportunity to make another change in the next quarter. And so, yeah, it's really, it's really cool. The lenders definitely have an added element. They're not going for the highest return necessarily as the only return. They see the return and the benefit to the community and the benefit to the businesses that are receiving the lending as a piece of the benefit that they get as well. And then the same thing from the borrower's side, there might be other places where they could have a lower interest rate, but regardless, the benefit that they get out of it is is to have a much bigger play in a community and and receive all of the kind of bonuses that you do from having a really a humanized financial institution. Between the borrower and the lender, there is always negotiation. But to meet face-to-face and negotiate, and the focus is really not to get the highest interest rate or the lower interest rate from the borrowers, but to meet in the middle. 
That's what impressive to me. Yeah, it's amazing. And even like, you know, with another bank, I think of it as the bank who's the lender versus where their money is coming from. And so I think that's probably the biggest thing is that it closes that gap of opaqueness. Like, like where is even this money coming from, right? And in this situation, you get to actually have that connection of, of who's involved versus who knows where it's coming from kind of thing with a bank. It's transparency because you know exactly where your money is coming from. And the in, from the investor perspective, they also know where their money is going. It's like a circulation, right? Like it's, you know what your money is being used for and you can tell if it's really in alignment with your value because if it's not, from the borrower perspective, if you are a mission-driven founders, you can say, you know what? That's it. I'm not gonna take money from misalignment investor. And then the investor can also say, hey, you know what? I don't agree with this, with lending money to a certain type of business. And then as a result, I'm taking my investment away, right? right? So there is that transparency, which is, I think, not a lot of lending institution out there is doing this type of practice, which is amazing to me. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is. Yes. So, okay, you mentioned earlier you have a CFO. So I'm curious, as a founder, when should a business hire a CFO? When to do it is a good question. And I think it has to depend very specifically on, on business needs. For us, the right time to bring Susan on board, we were probably a little after the fact. <laughs> she did some cleaning up when she came on board and, and uh, a little earlier might have been a little easier. But, you know, we were at the place where we were selling internationally multiple lending relationships, a complexity of products, both cost of goods related and multiple states. And I think we had, you know, maybe 15 employees. And so the level of potential confusion and management was aiming toward an all-time high. And so what she brought, I mean, she's a fantastic individual person on our team, amazing, amazing, smart woman. And really what she brought was a level of sanity to the whole finance side of it, where it's just like, it's not just numbers on a page trying to shift them here and there, but there's really how it relates to the overall picture and helps us drive strategy and really look ahead. We've improved our forecasting really significantly since she's been on board. And that's a big piece of it as well. So in terms of when another business should bring a CFO on board pretty early on, and one of the ways that we worked, uh, we were able to do it with Susan too, was um, she was an independent contractor at first. So, mm -hmm. so we hired her for uh, the most important aspects of the skill. And then we swooped her in, but, um, <laughs> which is great. But, uh, but I think that's another thing that, that businesses can do is, uh, is, you know, find somebody who can just dedicate a little time here or there to do the high level work. So what was your pain point before you brought in Susan as an independent contractor? Well, we recognized that we weren't, we weren't really tracking to what we were kind of predicting and we weren't sure why. And we were, we were at a point where we knew we were going to continually grow. And if we weren't able to actually capture where our challenges were and, you know, where our opportunities were, it wasn't going to work. You know, that's probably the biggest part of it. And then just, there's a level of just straight organization also that's really helpful. So, you know, there's the strategic part, obviously that's by far the most important, but then breaking it down to, like I said, the storytelling so that the rest of the leadership team can can feel at ease to proceed with where their focus needs to be 
that's another piece as well. I told her in one of our first meetings, I told her that it felt like I got a massage after <laughs> we had a meeting. Cause I just like, all of a sudden everything feels clear and clean. And I think many small businesses as they are going through a growth stage, finance is all, always the end back end that forgotten, right? The fact mm-hmm. that <laughs> you feel like this is like a deep, relaxing massage. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Caroline, this has been a pleasure, truly a pleasure to have you in this podcast. I'm really grateful for you highlighting so much of these important aspects of business that aren't always talked about. Thank you for that. And I guess just if people are interested in learning more, our website is allgoodproducts.com. And on socials, we can be found at at All Good Brand. Caroline, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Christina, so much as well. And that's bring us to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for mission-driven women entrepreneurs. When you are ready to grow to the next level and seeking a finance team and a fractional CFO who are all in on your mission and can help you maximize profit to make a bigger social impact, Connect with us at theprofitreimagine.com forward slash let's chat.